Okay, I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis, if you would, Genesis chapter 4. And if you have it electronically or maybe a hard copy, or if you're going to bring a Bible in with you, you'll see the verses up on the screen as well. But there's also hard copies of the Bible in the seats in front of you and the little racks. You can pull it out that way if you want. First book in the Bible. And I, I know that we just prayed together, but I'm going to ask you specifically to pray with me about this and with me about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, actually, there's a physician from our church who's leaving this week to go to the Ukraine to work there, so we're going to pray for his protection as well. But let's pray together about what God's doing among us this morning and that he would bring peace to the world. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are heavy and we're not ashamed to say that. We feel the, the pain for men, women, and children who are being killed on a daily basis, and it does not escape your notice. We're well aware of that. So, Father, we ask that you would bring an end to the slaughter that's taking place and that you would rescue the nation of Ukraine. God, that you would be their strength, their shield, their comfort. I pray, Father, for the leaders of governments that they would make decisions that are pleasing to you and that they would lean into your wisdom. And rather than chasing after things that they want or what are politically correct, God, I ask that you would intervene. So as a people group, we're gathered together this morning asking that you would indeed be the God of comfort and the God of peace. Accomplish your purposes, but also bring an end to this. I thank you for the time that we can focus right now on your word and how it will speak to us. So we lift it up before you this time together for the next 30 minutes asking that you would use your word to strengthen us in our walk and that we would know better who we are before you and who you are to us. I pray for that in the matchless name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. So there's this quiet space between chapter three and chapter four. It, it caused you, if you really meditate on it a little bit, to draw a breath. Because you, you've seen the magnificence of the creation. And you've seen God call everything very good. And then you hit chapter 3. And it, it leaves you with a sense of loss. How, how could they do that? How could humans fall that way, yet at the same time recognizing if it had been us, we would have done the exact same thing. We're no stronger than Adam and Eve. So before you get to chapter four, you ponder and you begin vegetating on these things that are in chapter three and in this quiet space in between, there's issues that mentally arise and pop up in your head, which for sure humans will ponder for generations ahead while they're waiting for the arrival of the future Messiah. Because it'll be thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene, the one that God promised would be born through the seed of the woman in chapter 3. So it leaves people with a sense of what do they do in the meantime? Knowing that it will not be until the first century AD that Jesus appears to dwell among us here on this planet, a common question pops up, and it popped up this week, and people caught me after the services last week and asked this exact same question. What about all those people who lived from Adam and Eve all the way to the time of Jesus? 
They never had a chance to hear about him. And I understand in the midst of that question, individuals are thinking about people in their own social circle and in their life who don't have all the information, who don't have all the pieces. And, and we may be thinking about people at the time of Noah, and we may be thinking about people who lived in China in the second century AD who never heard and were left with the wonderment of what about those people if they never had a chance? So here's the question behind the question that's usually asked. How can it be fair that someone would be judged by God and condemned if they never had a chance to actually choose? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Well done. And that one we're going to hit right up front. We're going to hit this biggest issue right up front. Because as you encounter the God of the Bible, you quickly realize that he is righteous. He's a righteous God. Scripture says it over and over again. I know that you know that your church people here on a, a morning when the winds could blow you away, yet you chose to be here. And so you probably understand that at its very basic core. God is a righteous God, and the Bible amplifies it. Let me show you some examples. Exodus 9.27, the Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. By the way, that's Pharaoh saying that. After he's dealing with Moses, he recognizes, okay, I, I give. I recognize your God is the righteous one. Or here from 2 Chronicles 12.6, And the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. Or what David wrote in Psalms 145, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. You know that, though. And that truth should bring you to a point of recognition very, very quickly, which is this. God can only act righteously. He's righteous. He can only act righteously. Therefore, everything he does is just. He can only act with justice. Therefore, for all the people who live in our era and all those who lived at the time of Noah... God will only ever act justly when determining their eternal destiny. Because God is absolutely just, he will never deliver condemnation unless it's deserved. Therefore, no one will ever be condemned by God without deserving condemnation. And by the way, we all deserve condemnation. That's the catch. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all deserve it. That's why we need Jesus. So if you're new to church, you need to know this because of this very issue is exactly why we need Jesus, because Jesus takes away your condemnation. Long pause for the amen. It's like you just did communion, right? You know that, though. That's why it's so important. See, that's one of the issues that surfaces when you're moving from chapter 3 to chapter 4. You take a breath, you draw it in and say, what? How do I move forward knowing all that they did when they fell? Well, that's one of the issues. But there's some other sets of issues here. Adam and Eve have guilt. They now have a conscience, as we discovered last week. They know good and evil. 
And so they've developed this conscience, and yet they're separated from God, and they've been banished. They've been driven out of the garden, but they have this ongoing guilt issue because they now have a conscience as a result of their rebellion, so it presents two enormous difficulties. What do you do with your guilt? If you're separated from God and you've been banished from His presence, what do you do? And here's the other one I raised last week. How do you explain these things to your children? God promised them future children that they would bear. How do you explain it to them? How do you, New Hope, this morning? How do you deliberately explain and help people to know the God who created and promised a way of escape? See, Adam and Eve have a problem on their hands, the same problem that you encounter throughout the course of your life. How can you help others to know the God of the universe? Now, to address this, we have to actually dabble into chapter 4 of Genesis. And I I know that if you're working through the guidebook that Rich wrote to go along with us, we're still in book 1, part 9 and part 10. And I do encourage you to finish that out this week and next week. That will be the end of book 1. And what I'm about to get into is in the beginning of book 2, but we're not going to go too far into it this morning. I just need to dabble in it a little bit. Genesis 4, verse 1 says this. Now the man had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Already there's herdsmen on the scene. There's already farmers, a, a tiller, and he's cultivating the soil just like his daddy. Whatever Adam learned, he obviously passed on to his sons, which emphasizes and reminds me that we are a really, really ingenious people. They're living in the wilderness, as we discovered last week. And that has caused these humans to immediately become resourceful and put their God-given talents to use for problem-solving and for survival. Because when God designed us, when He built us, He made us exceptionally creative people. Emphasize, in our era, we've actually seen people not only discover DNA and unlock the genetic code, they don't just study it today, they can actually repair it. And if that doesn't blow your mind, what about the capacity that we've developed to clone animals? Like, wow, and don't get me started on telecommunications from satellites. Like, what? How in the world do we capture those signals moving back and forth? For instance, the little device you hold in your hand that you walk around with every day called a cell phone that some of you use when you're driving at warp speed. I know because I've seen you. (laughs) Explain that to me, how it can capture voices moving around in space and bring it in right into your car, which, by the way, requires Bluetooth, and I totally don't understand, and no one can explain it to me. I move from that into the medical world, and I understand that we've harnessed the way to develop chemicals by putting together compounds and elements of the earth that greatly alleviate suffering in ways that our ancestors never knew. All of this information put together tells me that we've really learned how to harness, harness the elements. Just the concept of manufacturing alone and the supply chain that goes with it well, when it's working right. Those are all really big deals, and computers are absolutely mind-boggling to me. See, as a species, 
we have developed astonishing progress at harnessing the elements of the physical world. And it appears to be expanding at an ever rapid rate. As a species, we've been able to harness the wonders of creation in ways that your ancestors would have never begun to imagine. So I've come to the conclusion we have really learned how to till the soil in amazing ways that Grandpa Adam would be amazed at. I actually think he'd be proud of us. We have put the soil to use. Yet, with all of our technological advancements, we have not advanced the root problem of humanity, meaning the broken heart and the broken mind. Technology can't fix that. On a global scale, we haven't solved the problem of tyrants. My mind goes to Vladimir Putin. We have problems in our world with world domination. And we haven't solved the problem on a personal level, individually. There's been no scientific remedy for the brokenness of humanity. Now, we know things in our world, and I'm talking about church people right now. We know things in our world are broken and are the way they are because of a damage at the core, which cannot be fixed with human solutions. Yet around the world, and in your social circle around your world, you interact with humans every day who continue to struggle to understand why things are the way they are. But for our ancient parents, Adam and Eve, they understood why. And they became very intent to looking to God for the fix because God made them a promise and they were waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And as you saw last week, they couldn't get to the tree of life. They've been banished from the garden. God put up protection systems for them. So they're watching and they're waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And let's amplify that now with going back into chapter 4, verse 1. Watch how this unfolds. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Had relations with is one word in the Hebrew language, it's the word yada. And in your Bible, if you had an older translation, like even the King James Version, it, it would say, he knew her. With the biblical language, to know her is talking about the, the most intimate of relations within marriage. It's a biblical synonym for sexual relationship. But that's a really important term not just to skip over. Because when you come to the New Testament, we discover that when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, the scriptures say he had not known her. They're a really important term. He knew her socially, but he had not known her in sexual ways. Very important term, and the story keeps going in part B of verse 2. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. The very typical brevity of Scripture. It, it gives us such little information, very limited information about things that we'd like to know a lot more about. Because they're baby boys, and in the very next breath, they're adult men working the soil. Like, I want to know, what were they like as teenagers? What was home life like? But we don't get that information. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And I'm left with more questions, like, how did they know to do that? 
Cain and Abel weren't raised in the garden like Adam and Eve. They didn't have the exposure to God that Adam and Eve had had. How, how did they even know to bring an offering? What's the motivation? And where did they bring the offering to? Well, it doesn't tell me. Here's what I do know. I know the Bible is not yet, in this period of time, a written document. So that means the only knowledge that they have of God is from their mom and dad. Whatever their parents shared with them and relayed to them, what the Hebrew language calls in toldot form, T-O-L-D-O-T. It's a Hebrew way of exchanging information, sharing verbal inspiration, verbal stories. They got that from their parents and... They've got information about God that you have available to you today. They have that which they can personally see of God in the world that they live in. In other words, His fingerprints. They see the revelation of God in nature, known as natural revelation. So verse 4 says, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. That portion we're going to save for book two, but we will be getting to that. Here's what you're seeing. You're seeing a really familiar story unfold here. And many families today can identify with exactly what's going on. The very sharp contrast because you have the same family and kids who were raised in the same household. And one is defiant and unrepentant, what many theologians have come to call the Cain syndrome. He's the prototypical non-believer. Right there alongside him, though, is another child who's from the exact same family and is living a life that pleases God. His name is Abel. And, and Cain and Abel, their story is this common and very familiar outline to us of the character of an unregenerate and a regenerate person. Now, the first thing we learn about Cain as you open up this passage is that his life starts out with really great hope for him. Very, very hopeful. Look at with me again at verse 1. She conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, that's an optimistic statement. I'm going to show you why. That's a really promising statement. Uh, every mom obviously begins life with her baby with high expectations for her baby. Even those who turn out to be unbelievers have really hopeful beginnings. Parents always expect the best of their kids, and the parents want to point them in the right direction. But the first thing we learn about Cain in the story is there's hope that he's going to have a really great future because he has great potential. Here's how I know. Most English translations of the Bible don't actually capture this. This is the way most English translations read. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. But if you look at the original text, you'll find that that phrase, with the help of, it actually isn't there. If you have a Bible in front of you right now, there's a very good chance that it's actually in italics. It is in my Bible. With the help of is in italics because it was added later by the translators. And here's why. It was placed there by the translators because they didn't know what to do with this ancient Hebrew sentence structure. And so the translators thought they would help Moses out by giving a little clarification to the statement because it didn't make sense in English. But the earliest Hebrew text literally reads this way. I have gotten a man 
Jehovah. Now, that should make the wheels begin turning in your head. Here's where the mistake came in. This is going to feel like you're getting off in the weeds, but just bear with me on this. I feel a little bit technical, but hear this and you'll see why. Where the mistake came in is with the arrival of the English translation. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Septuagint, but the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so somewhere around the first century, people began looking at the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, and they began translating it over to other language, which was Greek. And in the Greek language, in the Septuagint, it actually was rewritten to say, I have gotten a man-child through God because they didn't know what to do with that statement. And then when the Latin language came along and the church adopted it, in the Latin Vulgate, they wrote it the exact same way, through God. And the English Bible was based on the Latin Vulgate, and so they added in that phrase, with the help of. But prior to the English, prior to the Latin, Prior to the Greek Septuagint, the way the ancients would have read this early text is like this. I have gotten a man, the Lord. But the Jewish scribes, they really didn't like that rendering because it implied that a woman would give birth to God. Well, hello. That's exactly what God said was going to happen in Genesis 3, that it would come through the seed of the woman. So here's what happened. An attempt was made by the translators to get around the obvious by adding the concept through God, which became in English through the help of God. But Adam and Eve knew differently. Moses knew differently. Adam and Eve knew that a woman would give birth to the promised one and that that one would be a God-man. And so they're looking forward and they're anticipating so look at a literal way of the Hebrew text from Genesis chapter 4. This is the way it actually reads. And the man knew his wife. She conceived and bare Cain and had said, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Now, the very same sentence construction is carried over into the next statement. It says, again, she bare his brother Abel. Abel translated means vanity. Now, why in the world would you name your child vanity? What mistake could you have making, made that caused you to call him vain? Very, very few English translations actually capture what Eve is saying here. In Hebrew, it's quite clear that Adam and Eve understood and they believed God's promise. From Genesis chapter 3, do you remember God's promise? You were just in there a few weeks ago. Look with me at this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Okay, we're out of the weeds now. We're back to this place where we can really get it and ignore the Greek Septuagint and ignore the Latin Vulgate and the English mistake and understand that God told Adam and Eve that the serpent, Satan, ultimately will be defeated by a God-man. Here's where the error comes in. Eve obviously thinks that Cain is the promised one. She thinks that he is the seed of the woman. Her thinking is that Cain is the arrival of Jehovah man. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I've quoted before, you know that he's a Jewish scholar that I, I lean into a lot. And Arnold explains it this way. Here's his sentence. 
Her basic theology is correct. The coming Messiah, seed of the woman, will be both God and man. Her mistake is in the application of that theology. Eve assumed that Cain, her firstborn son, was the promised God-man. Now, with all that information, we're out of the weeds, right? With all that information, bring it forward to the statement here from Genesis 4.1 and read it again. And the man knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. But when Abel is born, Eve realizes her mistake because at the birth of her second son, she names him Vanity, revealing her presumption. She's presumed upon God that the promised one would be a child that she would bring into the world. And then she realized, oh, that was really vain. I'm going to name him Vanity. And it's going to remind me throughout the course of his life not to presume upon God. But they were looking forward to God's plan and God's promise. See, the reality is that Adam and Eve were really looking for the one who would bring the rescue because they knew that their world was broken. They knew that there was sin that had to be dealt with. They knew that there were issues and they were really looking for God's promise to be fulfilled. So you have two sons and two parents who are living in the wilderness and the parents have been banished from the garden and even Adam have a massive difficulty moving forward. What do you do with your guilt? And how do you help others, especially your children, to know this God? Well, with Cain, it starts out really, really hopeful. The parents have very high expectations. And even if they did err in presuming upon God's plan, still, they're really focused. They get a gold star. They're focused on God's plan. They're clearly thinking God thoughts. And they've raised their sons to keep God in their lives. But it doesn't take long for Cain's sin nature to surface because he inherited sin just like the rest of us. He's born into it. In fact, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain, is spoken of pretty poorly in the New Testament. They call him out in 1 John because his actions are anything but godly. They're ungodly. 1 John 3.12, Cain was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So the New Testament identifies Cain as this one who is associated with the evil one himself, Satan. Abel, on the other hand, is called righteous. And he believed God and he trusted God. He trusted the promise of God. So we get this in Hebrews 11.4 in what's called the Hall of Faith. The writers of Hebrews would say this about Abel. By faith, Abel offered a, to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Mind you, all those other things aside, they've both been raised in the same house. They've both learned God talk. They both have had opportunity to know God, a relationship with God. What explains this? Is, is it because of the environment? Is that why one turns out evil? If you're living in the wilderness and there's no written word of God and you don't have a copy of the Bible in front of you, well, do you get a pass then if you've never had an opportunity to study the Bible? 
Is that what's going on here? Tertullian was a scholar, and he lived in the first century, second century AD. It was actually an understudy of John and Polycarp. And in the later part of the second century, he's one of the founders of the church. They call him an early church father. He wrote this insight. It was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the creator. What's he referring to? He's talking about natural revelation. He's looking back at Cain and Abel's life and he said, it wasn't because of what Moses wrote down that they understood God. That wasn't what caused them to bring a sacrifice forward. That wasn't what caused them to recognize they needed to make an offering to God. Now, obviously, the mom and dad have had some degree of influence, but these guys are grown here. They're making adult decisions about God. What brings them to these choices, and why should I even care in 2022? Well, it directly relates to your world. It directly relates to what you're dealing with every day. See, there's a sweeping statement that's made in Romans chapter 1 about these very issues. And it was relevant in the statement what Paul wrote to the people who lived at the time of Cain and Abel and the people who lived at the time of Noah and the people who lived in the first century and to us today living in 2022. It's speaking of all humans, Romans 1.19. That which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. So that's God calling out individuals who, who are created in the image of God, in other words, all humans, and God's saying there really isn't a category on earth called atheist. Everyone knows. They may not admit it, but it comes back to their mind at 2 in the morning. Everyone knows because it's evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God made it evident. How did he do that? How did God make it evident to all of humanity? Well, what Romans goes on to explain is in creation, that creation is the witness. The evidence is plain. The word evident in the Greek language, you see it in your notes and you see it on the screen, is the word phaneros. And phaneros is actually something that's shining, apparent. You can't miss it. It's brilliant to look at. If God made something evident, if he made it shining, if he made it apparent, you certainly must be able to see it. Well, Paul specifies what that is that you can actually see in the next verse, verse 20. Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, pause, since the time of Adam and Eve, since the time of Cain and Abel, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. First thing you should pull away from that is not something negative, but something positive. It's telling you that God wants us to know him. See, if he didn't want us to know him, he wouldn't have made it evident. But he makes it evident so nobody can miss it. So he reveals through natural creation. What are the things that he reveals according to what Romans 1 is saying? He says that there are attributes of God that we can know, his eternal power. Well, what's that? The big $10 church word, omnipotence. He's omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, and you see it in the magnificence of his creation, the awesomeness, even the power of this wind that's out there right now. Scripture argues you can see the evidence of God in 
all of the hydrological cycles around this planet, but also, Paul writes, in his divine nature. Well, what's that? That's his kindness. That's his grace to you. That's his mercy. Where do I see that? Well, in his provision for your daily existence. And the book of Acts goes on to amplify. It says this in chapter 14. He did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, you get to eat every day. You get the benefit of the hydrological cycle. You get to consume, and that's part of the evidence of God. So in nature the, is the revelation of God, and Scripture saying it's not obscure, it's evident to everyone. And so Paul goes on to say it's clearly seen, it's being understood by what has been made. So what can you see today that Cain and Abel saw? You get to look at the night sky and see the same stars that Cain and Abel saw. You get to see a magnificent sunset. You get to see the beauty and the wonder of human birth. You, you can see a seed become a mighty tree. Scripture says all those things scream God. So Romans 1 verse 20 says they are without excuse. Today we have great technological knowledge. We have so much available to us today that the ancients did not have in the way of information about the things of God. When we can examine creation and look at microscopic and telescopic details, we have opportunities of knowing God far beyond anything that the ancients ever enjoyed. Like we have a complete Bible written, Old Testament, New Testament, in multiple languages. And we have the clear revelation of God in Jesus who's called the image, the, the image of the invisible God. We have all of that. But I'm left asking this question. With all of our additional knowledge, have we improved as a human species? Is our world better because of technological advancement? Well, as to the condition of the human heart, we would say, no, not really in the slightest. We've made immense lifestyle progress. And mind you, I really like my tech gadgets, so don't take them away. I, I do, and you do too. We've made immense progress with those, but at the same time, it's countered by the fact that there's no spiritual progress. Yeah, I would really quickly add the reality that we are not better than we were in the days of Cain and Abel in regards to the broken hearts that we have, in itself is the evidence of the truth of the Bible. Here's why. Because it's God in the Bible, the God of the Bible, who declared that because of sin, we are broken. And there's no technological advancement that can fix that. There is only one fix for that, and his name is Jesus. Ten of you believe that. I know you believe that. It should cause us to step back and say, yeah, that's right. That's the gospel of salvation, that Jesus fixes that. Only he can deal with the sin and with the brokenness, the sin of your life ten years ago, the sin of your life last night, today, and the sin of your life ten years from now. Only Jesus can do that. Only his blood can take away all sin for all time if you believe.
And if you believe, he will rescue you from the judgment and the condemnation of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Praise God for that new hope. Praise God for that reality. So Scripture's making this argument before we ever really get into chapter 4 of Genesis. It's making this argument that God's wrath and His judgment, as far as that's concerned, related to Cain, the, the non-believer really has no defense because they're refusing the knowledge they do have. Because you can see God in His natural revelation, and when you can see that, it comes with massive responsibility for every single one of us. So this morning, we're left with the recognition that Adam and Eve faced the same choice that Cain and Abel faced, which is the exact same issue you face. How do I respond to the knowledge I do have? In every age, mankind has had sufficient opportunity to attain to the knowledge of God. So it's not really about a lack of information. What God judges us on, because He's a righteous and just judge, God judges us on the knowledge that we do have. What did we do with what we do know? And God's saying, it's characteristic of mankind. I know because I built them that they know much more truth than they are willing to translate into response. We know way more than we're willing to act on. So how do I respond to this? Well, if you're not yet a believer, if you're new to church and you're not quite yet there, I want you to know for sure, and I, I promise you this is true, it is my great desire and hope that you would come and talk with me or any one of our leadership team. Our elders are in the prayer room after these services. You can go over there. If you want somebody to pray with you, that they're in that room, they'd be happy to pray with you. Approach us. We would love to help you work through these things. But last thought is for the majority of individuals who I know fill this auditorium already as believers. You participated in communion. How do we respond? Well, there's always a temptation when we know that we know that we know that we could fall into the category of forgetting how much grace was given to us and begin feeling a little bit smug. Like, I see it, too bad they can't. We don't ever want to get to that place because God's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so we lean into Titus 3, and Titus 3, 3, it reminds us who we once were. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's true, because we've all sinned. You might look at that list and say, well, that's not me, but you've sinned. And so we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So that means we all need Jesus, exclamation point. Amen? Amen? So how grateful should we be for the gospel and someone who shared it with us? Pretty fantastically grateful, I would say. Thank you, God, for reminders like communion. Let's pray together, church, that God would use us as we go out and take on the responsibilities of the world that we live in. Father, I, I pray for every single one of us as we take on this week, that we would acknowledge willingly that we once were lost, but now we've been found, and that we would not forget the grace and mercy you extended to us 
So work through us, Father. Extend your grace and your mercy through us to people who don't know. And people who are trying to make sense of why the world is so broken. Use us, God. You've shown us the answers. Use us to affect the lives of individuals who are desperately looking for a fix. I pray that you would affect, effectively use us in that way and that we would advance your kingdom as a result of it because Jesus is worthy of all that we can do to advance his name. We pray for this in the majestic name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.